Welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades Podcast, episode 246. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And man, this quarantine has got me down because of Facebook. And it's not any of the usual garden variety reasons to be annoyed with Facebook, of which there are plenty. No, it's because this time of year, April 8th, April 7th, April 6th, April 5th, damn near every single day, I am reminded of going to opening day at Coors Field. I wake up in the morning. I click over to my memories. This is not the exact first thing I do, but bear with me. I'm taking a little artistic license here. But I look at what I did in years previous. And many years, I was down on Blake Street, drinking in the morning, getting lunch with my friends, and just wishing everyone a happy opening day. And as I look out the window right now, it is a beautiful day here in Denver. I'm recording this on April 7th. This goes live April 8th, which, by the way, April 8th, one of my favorite days on the calendar. There's a lot of things that happen that day. Sometimes opening day, sometimes WrestleMania, but always Rex Manning Day. Gotta love Rex Manning Day. This can't happen. Not on Rex Manning Day. And also, it's the anniversary of Deft Communications. So, the fact that this airs April 8th, 2020... That means I have now been in business for five years, and this is my longest job ever. Isn't that wild? It's crazy. I'm surviving through COVID here. I hope you are too. It's not looking great. It's not looking rosy. I've got projects dropping like flies here, but I am optimistic because this is still, amazingly enough, light years better than my 2019. But I am bummed because there's no baseball around. So you know what? Let's fix that. Let's do at least a couple of baseball episodes, and let's start with this one. Number 246 is Eric Nussbaum. He is a writer who's written for Deadspin, Sports Illustrated, ESPN the Magazine, Vice. He's written all over the place. And he's got a book that is out now called Stealing Home, Los Angeles, the Dodgers, and the Lives Caught in Between. And according to Eric himself, this is the book he has always wanted to write. It's about Dodger Stadium, how it came to be. And all of the elements beyond baseball that kind of coalesced and brought Dodger Stadium into existence. Now, we're talking about the 1950s here. And the common knowledge, and we talk about this on the podcast, is that the Dodgers just abandoned Brooklyn and got their stadium out in L.A. Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And it involves eminent domain. It involves public housing. It involves displacing people of color. It involves the Red Scare of the 1950s. You know, HUAC the House Un-American Activities Committee, and there's a lot going on. So I talked to Eric about, hey, why is this the book you have always wanted to write? And he tells me, he tells me this great story about getting introduced to this topic in high school. He's a baseball nut as I am. He's also a writing nut like I am. I don't write as much as I used to. And so we hit it off. You'll see in the companion blog piece, I think he does a pretty clever job of positioning the camera, but he's doing it from his closet. So we connected via Zoom meeting. I'd never met Eric before, and I found him on Twitter. So former editor of Deadspin, guy named David Roth, who I really, really like. I love his work. I think he's a fantastic writer. He retweeted something from Eric, and in it, Eric said, this is the book I've always wanted to write. I will talk to any blog, any podcast, any Q&A. And so I just reached out to him. I sent him an email, and I said, hey, I got a podcast. Come talk to me. I love baseball. I love history. I love issues of public concern. And he goes, great. So we set it up. We talked. He sat in his closet. I sat in my office. We're all home. So it's kind of funny. We're trying to get space to do the things that we need to do while our spouses take care of our kids. And a lot of tagging in and out, a lot of challenges that way, but we're making it work, you know, like everyone else. We're doing the best that we can, and it's certainly not easy. But this is a nice respite from kind of what's going on. We talk a little bit about coronavirus. We talk a little bit about COVID. But I mean, that's every conversation you have with every person right now, isn't it? The bulk of this conversation is about baseball. It's about his book. It's about sports writing. So if you're interested in any of these topics, this is a great episode for you and a good way to take your mind off of what's going on and what's not going on. To make sure we ended this on a high note, we did the old Deadspin gag where we remembered some guys. 
I love remembering guys. How much fun is it to remember some guys? Get together with your sports friends and remember some guys together. It's a good way to pass the time. You can find links to where you can get Stealing Home on the companion blog piece, also in the show notes. So the companion blog lives at johnofalltrades.us. That's J-O-N of alltrades.us. In the show notes, if you're listening to us on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, that's right. I'm now part of iHeartMedia. My podcast has been accepted under iHeart, which is really, really exciting. You can find links to his book in the show notes on any of those platforms, including a bunch of ones that I didn't mention. And before we get to the episode, just a quick shout out to Deft Communications. That's my company. We produce the John of All Trades podcast. We're also currently producing three more. And it's interesting watching your business evolve as we're all sort of forced to stay at home. I'm usually out and about. I'm usually meeting people. I'm doing client stuff. But when it starts going down, you got to pivot, you got to be nimble, you got to think quickly, and that's what we've done. So producing these podcasts remotely has been an enormous pleasure and a privilege to work with the organizations that I do. I've been hustling this business for five years. I hope to go five plus years more. I hope I don't ever have to take another job if I don't want to. And so the fact that we're releasing episode 246 on the five-year anniversary of this company, it's a huge thrill. It's a giant pleasure. Thank you very much. Also, happy Rex Manning Day to you. One of the greatest days of the year. Watch Empire Records. You're going to enjoy it. But before you do that, listen to episode 246 of the podcast with Eric Nussbaum. He's a writer, former editor at Vice. He's been in Sports Illustrated, ESPN, the magazine, Deadspin, a ton of other places. And he's the author of Stealing Home, Los Angeles, the Dodgers, and the lives caught in between. And his episode starts right now. pretty good it's kind of weird uh you know like you spend your whole life working on or like working towards this one goal and then when it happens you can't leave your house (laughs) (laughs) Um, so uh, like on one hand it's been great uh the book's out in the world it's exciting um on the other hand it's a little bit surreal that it like exists almost only as a digital experience and i'm you know doing stuff like this and spending all my time on social media yeah uh it's kind of a trip. <laughs> yeah, my entire world right now is all audio, which is yeah. really, really strange um, because I'm remote producing podcasts for organizations uh, as in addition to my own show, which I'm doing here. Yeah, it like I'm still connecting with people, but it just feels different. Like it, it almost feels like we're living in the future. It does. It feels like a, not the future I would have imagined necessarily either. Like, well, no. I, uh, <laughs> I've spent a lot of time, like I've done a, more podcasts and interviews and I've been on discord chats and like all this different stuff that it's, it's new, you know, like yeah. I've been on podcasts before, but it's, it's definitely a different, uh, day to day life than I'm used to. Yeah, for sure. Did I see on Twitter, do you have young kids in the house? The, yes, I have a four year old and a two year old. Oh my God. Okay. So you're like in the same boat as I am because my kids are five and three. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so my wife is now working from home. She actually works for a hospital, but in property management. So, mm-hmm. um, so they sent her home. So we're here. Yeah. Making it work. Are, is everyone at home where you are? Yeah. Everyone's at home. I'm in a closet in our, in our bedroom right now, <laughs> uh, which is the quietest place in the house. And the kids are in the basement with my wife who is also working from home. And we're just trying to, it's like, we're trying to make the best of it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Are, are you kind of tagging in and out? Cause that's what we're doing. Definitely a lot of tagging in and out. A lot of my work right now is like, emails and just like being on top of the book promotion. So I can, it's not the best parenting, but I can keep an eye on the kids like while doing that a lot of the time when I'm doing an interview like this, uh, she, she steps in and lets me get my space. No, totally. My wife will have conference calls and sometimes she'll be taking them from the driveway. Like while my kids are drawing hopscotch or yeah. whatever, you know? And so do you have uh, boys or girls? Uh, two boys, two boys. Okay. Two girls over here. Oh, cool. So yeah, it's uh it's wild. So this is Eric Nussbaum. And you've written a book called Stealing Home, and I, I read a little bit about this. It seems like you're already getting great praise for it, which is tremendous. Yeah, I mean, so far it's been kind of amazing. I mean, I, I don't think there's been too many like official official reviews, but right. um, you know, the plot process of getting blurbs with a back cover was really cool. Uh, you get these writers and these figures you admire, and they read your book and they like it, and that's so gratifying. I mean, it's almost like beyond what you can imagine having out in the world is it's even better. Yeah, no, totally. Um, so yeah, I want to, I want to speak to that real quick because I noticed, 
one of the quotes on there is from Jay Caspian Kang, a writer I very much admire. And he wrote, what do the things we love actually cost and who pays the price? And in terms of the context of this book, can you use that to sort of give me a synopsis of what this book is? I mean, obviously, I've read, you know, the, the synopsis that you have on the website. But through that lens, what do the things we love actually cost? Sure. So the thing we love, right, in this book, the central looming place is Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles, right? Kind of the first, quote unquote, modern ballpark. And now it's one of the last old ballparks, uh, right. you know, almost 50 or more than 50 years, almost 60 years after after it opened. Uh, so the story of the book is well, the story Eric, of I, how... Let me. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm just going to interrupt you real quick, because one of the things that's mystifying to me is I'm here in Denver. Sure. And Coors Field is now, I think, the third oldest ballpark in the National League. Whoa. Right? It's not even the original Rockies ballpark. No, no. They played mile high. <laughs> but, no, it's like uh, Wrigley, Dodger Stadium, and Coors. I, I think That's a trip. I know. Isn't that weird, like, how quickly things advance? And, I mean, Dodger Stadium's really old. Wrigley's super old. But, you know, the first quote-unquote modern ballpark, how many iterations have we gone through now you know, like the ugly ballparks of the 70s and then, you know, sort of the, the Camden Yards in the 90s and the revival of the sort of new old ballpark. Um, and now I think we're into a different area, which I don't even know how to define. Yeah, like a weird postmodern ballpark, like in <laughs> Miami or something. It's right. It's weird because I feel like the relationships between like what a city wants from a stadium and what a team wants a stadium to be is always changing. Sure. And sometimes the moment is perfect and you get like a Camden Yards, which spawns a bunch of imitators that aren't as good right and then sometimes you get like the graves weird suburban stadium that they just opened uh or the rangers new stadium <laughs> oh, God, that was supposed yeah. to be opening today yeah or uh, it, or like in and there's some that still stand like uh, kaufman stadium in kansas city which is kind of like one of those weird like netherland kind of uh kind of ballparks in terms of architectural eras yeah, I've never been there. I've heard actually that it's really pleasant to watch a game at Kauffman Stadium. Oh, I love it. It's fantastic, but it's it's almost anachronistic looking now. You know, it almost looks like what was the old Cincinnati ballpark? Um, oh, the vet. No, that's Philadelphia. Uh, um, like Riverfront. Riverfront. Yeah. yeah. You know, just one of those weird sort of uh, almost uh, symmetrical dimensions and things like that. But no, I've been to Kauffman. It's delightful. And it's in that it's in one of those giant like sports campuses that right. they used to build with next to next to Arrowhead. Yeah, totally. Um, so I, I apologize, I interrupted you, but uh, yeah, keep going. Talking about the love of Dodger Stadium. Sure. So the book is about how LA arrived at Dodger Stadium, and it was a very fraught, complicated process. Uh, Dodger Stadium sits now essentially where there used to be three smallish to medium-sized Mexican-American neighborhoods in L.A. One was called Palo Verde, one was called La Loma, and one was called Bishop. And in the late 40s, the city of L.A. decided that these sites, hills where these neighborhoods were nestled, should be the site of a brand-new, giant, utopian, sparkling public housing project. So it evicted you know, more than a 1,000 families, and it made the choice to put a housing project there. Uh, they designed it. They got famous architects. They, they really like went all in on this. And then the red scare happened and public housing became an object of right-wing political figures in LA, real estate developers. And they tie public housing to, to socialism, to communism in order to elect a conservative quote unquote conservative, more business friendly mayor. They succeeded at that. The project was canceled the land sat mostly vacant except for a few families who held out and refused to leave until the city eventually swapped it to the Dodgers to build the stadium. Wow. It, and how well known, particularly outside of Los Angeles, is that story? I think it's mildly known. I think baseball right. people like who are, you know, kind of nerdy like me might know it or know know it vaguely. I think people think that there's a a version of the story that's kind of a simplified mythological version where the Dodgers, you know, abandon New York and, and right. betray Brooklyn and then come to L.A. and the Dodgers immediately evict these communities themselves. Right. Uh, and that's sort of kind of like the simple, not really accurate version of the story. It's a lot more complicated than that. And I think in, a, in many ways, a lot more tragic than that. Yeah, I, I'd be inclined to agree because I've heard that version, sort of the simplified version, any number of times. Yeah, the Dodgers abandoning Brooklyn and then 
exactly as you laid it out. But was it that sort of gap in knowledge that compelled you to write this? So, I mean, you said this is the book you've always wanted to write. And for what reasons was that? I mean, I, if I had to guess, I would say it would start with a love of the Dodgers. Yeah, so it started with a love of the Dodgers. Um, I was a baseball-obsessed child growing up in L.A. When I was in high school, uh, my junior year, my U.S. history teacher, who was an amazing teacher, brought in a man named Frank Wilkinson to speak to us about the Red Scare. And Frank Wilkinson became a central character in my book. He was the public housing official who was sort of the engine behind this project called the Legion Park Heights. Mm -hmm. And he was also a communist secretly. (laughs) Interesting. Really? (laughs) Yes. And so he, he was testifying at an eminent domain hearing about the evictions in 1952. So like three years into the process of, of them trying to build this, build this project. And an attorney for the plaintiff asked him, you know, what political affiliations have you had in your life? Can you list all of them? And, you know, he starts <laughs> to go ahead and list them thinking like, well, going back to like his fraternity at UCLA, you know, everything. Yeah, sure. And obviously omitting, omitting one very, very uh, specific political affiliation. The whole thing became a huge scandal. It was on the front page of every paper and it ruined his career. Uh, he got, he got fired. His wife was a public school teacher. She got fired. He ended up becoming a sort of free speech activist uh, and kind of dedicating his life to fighting against HUAC, uh, the House and American Activities Committee. Right. But it was really, really touch and go there for a while for him and his his family. And it also spelled the end of his dream of public housing in L.A. Right. Wow. So you, you intersected with this gentleman in high school. And I, how far removed are we from there? I don't, I'm not asking you to date yourself, but... Oh, it's okay. That was 2002. He passed away, I don't know, maybe 2008 or 2006. Okay. Uh, so it was, it was before I started working on the book. Okay. But did you have any sort of historical artifacts from him? Did you, were you able to interview him before he passed? Like, how long did you have this book in your head, you know, before it came to fruition? Sure. I think on some level that day, I was like, maybe deep in my subconscious, I wanted to write this book. My wife uh, tells me that when we were in college and we weren't even dating yet, I told her the story and mentioned that I dreamed of writing a book about it. I don't remember having that conversation with her, but I don't think she would make that up. Uh, So that would have been, you know, when I was 19, you know, it was a long time ago. As far as Frank goes, I did not get to interview him, but he has three children. I got to interview them. Uh, I got to interview his, his widow, Donna, uh, and he left a like 10,000 page oral history in oh, the archives man. at UCLA. So he left a lot to work with. That's, um, that's awesome. Uh, I could have literally just like spent a whole year re- reading that uh, over and over again. <laughs> well, it's funny um, talking about our wives. So I met my wife in 2004. And, you know, I don't normally share ESPN, the magazine articles with girls I'm dating, but there was this profile piece about Jake Peavy of all people when he was pitching for the Padres and he was just destroying, you know, mowing down hitters left and right all the time. And I sent it to her and she goes, why did you send this to me? And I go, I'm not entirely sure. I thought you might find it interesting. She goes, because he says in there, his favorite song is Poncho and Lefty by Willie Nelson. And that was my dad's favorite song. And I go, wow, that's weird. And then on the anniversary of her dad's passing, Jake Peavy serves up a home run to Todd Helton in Todd Helton's last game at Coors Field. Like it, and it came full circle and we got together actually on the, on the anniversary of her dad's passing too. So baseball more than any other sport to me is spooky like that in that it's so cool. The connections you make and don't always realize it. Yeah, that's wild. I also am very curious now about like what ESPN writer was talking to Jake Peavy about, Poncho and Lefty. Well, I I think he was actually talking about uh, Jake Peavy's routine, like he's this creature of habit. And I think before every game, he listens to Poncho and Lefty. That's a great song. Yeah, oh, I love that song. Well, especially now. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, baseball is spooky like that. And so I grew up loving baseball, too, but it's because my dad grew up in Chicago and was just this long-suffering Cubs fan. My dad was born in 1946. Last year, the Cubs won the pennant was 1945. Oh, man. So he'd never seen that before, and thank God 2016 happened. Not not even for me, but for him. And so I grew up with all this mythology, you know, the 84 Cubs, the 89 Cubs. Uh, 
what was it that drew you to baseball and made you uh, baseball obsessed? I don't really remember not being baseball obsessed. I think, you know, my, my parents are sports fans, but not crazy sports fans. Right. My, you know, my dad liked the Dodgers. Uh, he grew up in L.A. I grew up in L.A. I just always liked it a lot, you know, that from the time I was little. And the Dodgers, when I was a kid, were really fun. They weren't in the 90s. They weren't particularly good, but, you know, they were – Mike Piazza and Eric Kiros and Hideo Nomo and Raul Mondesi, they were winning yeah. all these rookie of the years and Dodger stadium is just such an incredible place to go as a kid and, and be and the ambiance and the vibe. And you get to watch TV and hear the game called by Vince Scully. It's just a really, it was a great time to grow up watching the Dodgers and it was free to watch games on, you know, oh, nice. broadcast television. You didn't have to buy a ridiculous cable package at the time. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, I've always been envious of the Dodgers for having Vince Scully because until the Rockies kind of handed the reins over to Drew Goodman, we just we had a string of announcers that I really didn't care for. Um, like the first one was uh, Charlie Jones and Dwayne Kuyper, and Charlie Jones was a football guy, so he talked too much. And I remember thinking, like, any time I'd get to hear Vince Scully, I'd go, he would let kind of the, the quietness and the solitude of the game take over in parts. And there's almost a poetry in the absence of language, which I really love. Yeah, I mean, I think that his silences are almost more impressive than, than what he says. The, the discipline, as someone who talks for a living, the discipline that you can have to do that, to not clutter the air with sort of just needless ephemera, is amazing to me and there's no one like him no it's really interesting when i'm interviewing people uh, on your end of this like not for a podcast but for a magazine article or a book let's say i always make a point to try to leave silences so mm -hmm. the other person will feel inclined to fill it and <laughs> and now now that i'm being interviewed for this book i have a hard time not filling the silences and i just want to keep talking so to talk you know for three and a half hours a night 162 nights a year and be able to maintain that that discipline, like you oh, said, yeah. it's super impressive. Well, it's funny. I do media training as part of my day job, and I tell people that. I'm like, reporters will sometimes just stop talking because people are uncomfortable with silence. It's not your job to fill it. And so, like, we, we're sort of – you and I are a bit of a push-pull there because, I mean, that is a great journalism trick. If you don't fill the space, someone else will generally try and fill it. Uh, I tell them, I'm like, careful – because I'm dealing with people who work in issues of controversy, I'm like, that's also a trap. If they haven't asked you a direct question, don't feel like you have to respond to it. And I said, also, if you're being interviewed on the phone, sometimes they're just writing stuff down. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you can hear the person scratching away at their pad or typing furiously right. while, while, they, while they catch up for the next question. Yeah, 100%. You've written for a lot of different places and places that I love. Deadspin, Sports Illustrated, Vice. What was your path like as a journalist? You loved baseball. Did you always love writing, too? Yeah, I always loved writing, too. I think on some level, they were always connected, probably, for me. I always sure. liked reading about baseball. You know, I used to read the sports page every day as a kid. I me too. It's been a circuitous path. Um, I've, you know, I wrote for the school newspaper in college. I did a bunch of weird, low, like, budget journalism jobs you know i worked for a local nonprofit land use journalism website in seattle that went under after three months i did a local news station night shift web editing um <laughs> a lot of blogging a lot of you know pitching stories to editors who probably didn't want to hear another email from me you just kind of scratch and claw and then you start to start to hopefully stick a little bit yeah, I mean, I would say in terms of journalism, your story is not atypical. And it reminds me, I was in student media in college, so there was our newspaper, our TV station, and our radio station. And, you know, you'd, you'd see our TV folks, because I went to CSU, so we, we have actually quite good student media. You'd see our TV folks go accept gigs like being a sports anchor in, you know, Boise, Idaho, or whatever, for eight fifty an hour. And when people see... You know, news personalities on TV, it's like, oh, they must be making a lot of money. And you go, uh, in a lot of cases, it's not quite uh, – it's it's maybe barely above minimum wage. And so scratching and clawing at this is, is always amazing to me. When did you feel like you got a foothold and you were more or less on stable ground, or do you even feel that today? I would say that 
I've have felt on and off stable ground at different points in my career. I mean, it's never that stable in media, unfortunately. No. I think if you if you tell yourself it's stable, then you're setting yourself up for enormous disappointment. There were the first moment that I felt like, wow, I can really do this was probably and like more than like I can do this as a as a fun thing to do that people might like, but like I can do this to make a living, maybe, uh, was when my first big print magazine story was published and that was in ESPN the magazine and that was 2013. Okay. What was it about? It was, I was living in Mexico city and it was about Lucha Libre. It was about gay and trans Lucha Libre wrestlers in Mexico city. Wow. Okay. So that I'm way into that. I got to track this story down because my wife and I met in graduate school, uh, studying like in communication studies. I did mine on media studies. She did hers on like gender, like gender issues and so she analyzed this movie called Better Than Chocolate, and she spent a great deal of time analyzing the trans character. So we've always been very interested in LGBTQ rights and uh, you know issues of transgender. I interviewed the filmmakers from a movie called Growing Up Coy here, which is about uh, an eight-year-old boy, born a boy, who wants to be recognized as a girl. And then there's a whole bathroom fight about it. Right. I mean, it it always comes down to the bathroom, doesn't it? It seems like it does in American politics right now. That's, that's for sure. It certainly does. So I may have to ask you about that more off Mike. Oh, and also I'm a huge professional wrestling fan. So, oh, yeah. All right. So this is right down your alley. Yeah. No. So right in my wheelhouse. So you were living in Mexico City. What were you doing down there? Really? I went to my wife and I. We weren't married yet, but we went down there. We were living in Seattle and we were both just ready for a change. So we decided we were going to do something kind of crazy and move to Mexico city. Um, <laughs> that was it. I taught English at first and was pitching stories and, you know, writing as much as I could. And that was the first one that kind of really stuck in this environment, given that no one can go out, given that we're all sort of stuck in the house, um, the hustle, cause I work, I've worked for myself now for the last five years. This podcast is just uh, a part of it. People are freaking out over what they're going to do, but I think, freelancers are more attuned to this kind of environment than anyone else. So what's it been like for you with this quarantine, not only with the book, but with other writing assignments that you may have or are pursuing, especially with sports shutdown? It's weird. I mean, sports media requires sports to happen, right? Like that's, that's a really obvious thing to say, but beyond just like the games happening, you know, the games provide storylines, the games, allow reporters to access players and coaches and staff. The games change the way that teams might make transactions and front offices might operate. So, so much depends on like the literal, just like momentum of the sport happening. It's really impossible right now. I mean, you can make phone calls and I think a lot of reporters are doing a great job of doing socially distant reporting on <laughs> coronavirus. Right. There's a lot of really good insight that's out there, but it's unlike anything I've ever experienced before. And I'm a person whose career has pretty much been writing on the internet. Like I, yeah. you know, I've written for print magazines. I've never worked at a newspaper uh, after college. I've tried, uh, <laughs> but that's, that's not the kind of media environment that I was born into, I guess. So I, I don't know, man. It's, it's just, it's weird. I'm hoping that there will be not too much pain and suffering amongst writers and creators after all this. Well, I agree with you. And one thing that's funny, you said in order to write about it or for, in order for this thing to exist, you need the games to happen. I don't know that Rob Manfred always uh, agrees with that, given what they're trying to do to minor league baseball, which is just enormously dispiriting to me because it's like you're missing kind of the big point here, which is a lot of people just enjoy going to the ballpark to watch this. It, it doesn't have to it, it. Not everything is just pure bottom line politics. And that's frustrating to me. Yeah, I think that, I mean, separate from, you know, the pandemic right now, there's been a shift in baseball towards exactly that, towards bottom line politics and bottom line profits that has been super disheartening and I think is really bad for the sports bottom line, ironically. Like you have teams... Uh, Counterintuitively, right? Yeah, I, I think teams that, you know, sacrifice everything and they're even minimal morality that they might have had to cheat is bad for baseball, even if it means winning. I think front offices that try to operate like a consulting firm or try to be super efficient and cheap, uh, for lack of a better word, right. 
while winning is not necessarily great. I think teams that maximize profit at the expense of maybe being accessible to their fans is really hurting the growth of the game. And you ask, oh, you know, why don't young people like baseball? Well, that's because it's like impossible to watch it and it's it's expensive and exclusive. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you. You know, there are a lot of owners. My dad has this old cliche. He's like, some people will squeeze the nickel until the buffalo shit. <laughs> which is one that uh, that I've always enjoyed. And I think in a lot of cases, baseball is stepping over a dollar to pick up a dime here. And that's super frustrating to me at, as a fan because baseball, it, the best explanation I've ever heard of baseball, when people say it's boring, I always respond with this. And it's a quote from a John Travolta movie that's totally forgettable called Basic. And he said, baseball's not boring. Baseball's a game of anticipation. And I thought, how brilliant is that? No matter where you are on the field, no matter what your role is, it's a game of anticipation. And if you can't get worked up for that, I don't know. Maybe you don't have a good brain. I mean, I don't think that it's about having a good brain or a bad brain. I know. I'm being being playful, (laughs) obviously, here, just as as a baseball fan. There's a lot about baseball that appeals to me, right? Like the sensibility of it, the pace, the silence the just like repetitive flow of it i really like uh but i can see why somebody else might not that said if you only like worry about what 30 owners want at the expense of sort of the like health and it's a better word here sort of vibrancy of the of the broader sport yeah you're gonna just kind of find that like all those kind of good subtleties of the game get washed away yeah, yeah, they uh, they melt away a little bit. Uh, I, I'm inclined to agree with you. So you've written for all these sites, and simultaneously you're writing this book. I've always wondered mechanically what that's like and how you actually dedicate your time in a day because you've got assignments coming in or you're pitching stories or you know however it works, depending on where you're writing. Um, and then in the background, you're also trying to get this book going. So two questions here. One, how do you balance your workload and secondly, how long did it actually, from when you started this book, I mean, uh, maybe not when you were 19, but, <laughs> but when you started it in earnest, how long did it come, uh, did it take to be realized having been released two days ago as we record this? Okay, so the first question was a lot easier. I mean, in terms of balancing time, before I had kids, that, that was, <laughs> there was a lot more time, it turns out, to write on the side uh, before I became a, a parent. I mean, just as whenever you can, as you know, you just kind of scratch out time here and there. Oh, it's like the old, uh, who is it, Gail Sayers, like 18 inches of daylight, right? This yeah. Is, this is what I need. It's totally true. I mean, and if you want to do it badly enough, you're, you'll do it. You'll oh, find yeah. time. So that's that answer, I guess. And the, the second answer about kind of the process of the book, certain like certain parts of this book were written probably back in 2013 when I was living in Mexico. That was when I was really first kind of conceiving of the book in a way that vaguely became what's published now only vaguely there there are some passages that definitely i can trace back to then i had it in the back of my mind and you know would think about it and work on it here and there until i left my job at vice in early 2018 and from then on it was like a pretty much a one-year sprint a little more than a year sprint to to write the first draft okay I've just I've gotten questions sometimes from people who listen to the show for process. Is this something that you pitched? Did you you know Did you send a treatment? Did you you know How did it work? Did Did you get any kind of advance for it? Um, yeah. Did... So i I had an uh, I got an agent. We worked up a book proposal for a different book, ironically, that was I thought a pretty good proposal and a pretty good idea that we sent out to an editor who said he liked it, but his boss was looking for a Dodger book possibly. And I said, Oh, wow. Well, I have an idea for that. Uh, this is the one I've really wanted to write the whole time. So I turned around and I wrote a really quick kind of like a, a treatment, almost a, a yeah. proposal, a letter. It was, it was not like a full, a full length book proposal. It was like 50 pages, you know, it's a, yeah, it's a sample chapters document. Yeah. Like that, yeah. So this was not that this was much, much hastier and turned it around and sold the book off that and got an advance and then got to work. It's amazing, like the way that works too, because you're pitching this other book. What was the other book, by the way? Or it? Or would you rather keep that quiet in case it does happen someday? It was another LA history book. Okay, and so sometimes people will unintentionally ask you the the best question that they could ask, 
And I love when that happens in life. It's like, hey, I actually want a Dodger book. And you go, okay, well, I've been waiting for someone in your position to ask me that, I don't know, since I was 19, right? Yeah, I mean, I'd actually, I had tried to pitch this book in the past uh, to agents mostly. And I was pretty universally told that it was kind of too local or too esoteric and it wouldn't really work. I think if you read the book, you'll find that it's extremely universal. I mean, it has a, a setting, which is Los Angeles, which is pretty big city uh that people know about but uh the themes in it the the action is you know it could have happened anywhere yeah and i i think not only could it have happened anywhere at least the way you're describing it to me i think it has happened everywhere to one extent maybe not particularly with a baseball stadium or a ballpark but in some form or fashion i think that's happened i mean you talk about displacement you talk about development you talk about competing political agendas i mean it's not just that it happened is that it's happening right now, actually. Yeah, and I, I one of the things that I hear about in Denver is they're redoing uh, a whole central section of I-70, and a lot of the folks who live there, so it's elevated highway, and it's one of the poor neighborhoods in Denver, and a lot of those folks are getting displaced because, you know, we need expanded infrastructure. And so it's a similar kind of thing, eminent domain, displaced people of color in service of the quote-unquote public good. And so... That, that segues me into a question. I saw a quote on, on your website from Chuck D. from Public Enemy, which I thought was awesome. And he says, Stealing Home has a driving plot, a humane heart, and a proud conscience. And I'm curious about that last part. When he says a proud conscience, how much of this book is, would you say, and I don't know how to characterize this properly because I haven't read it, but social activism, social awareness, that kind of thing. So the book is not like a, an essay in the sense that I'm trying to convince you of something. I didn't write it that way necessarily, right. but, and, and, and all the book action takes place really leading up to the opening of Dodger stadium in 1962. It, it's not about, you know, contemporary politics, but it is about politics. And I, I quickly discovered that if you're going to write a book about politics, you are going to be making political statements, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, you know, just what facts you choose to include or not include, what context you give and don't give, you have a political stance and there is no avoiding that. Right. And I think that my stance is pretty clear if you read the book, okay. but it, I, I don't state it explicitly. It's not, I didn't write it with the intention of generating political action necessarily. I wrote it with the intention of telling the story well and conscientiously as much as I could. Sure. Yeah. You, you want to be, you, you want to have fidelity to the subject matter. You, you want to tell this honestly I, I'm curious because going back to the Jay Caspian Kang quote, I I'm not going to guess what your conclusions are. You said people people will likely be able to surmise that for themselves if they read it. But after doing this book, you know, there's there's an old cliche that says, "Be careful what you wish for." Right? Has doing this book conflicted your relationship with the Dodgers, Dodger Stadium, or any other aspect of this? I don't think it doing the book has done that. I think that I have always been a sort of not hypercritical, but I've always tried to examine the things that I love. Like I'm not a person who can just like love something blindly. I have to, to really get deep into it. And I'm the I same mean, way. Yep. From the time I was 16 and heard this story, I knew that there was a, a tragic kind of history behind Dodger stadium. And I stayed a Dodger fan. Uh, I also grew up in Los Angeles and lived there until very recently. And I love Los Angeles. And for me to say that I don't, because this happened would be disingenuous. Like right. you can love something and also criticize it. You can love something and also know that it's screwed up really bad. And the tragedy that happened preceding Dodger stadium was so sprawling and big. It's a black mark on all of society in LA at the time. And for really like decades, possibly even centuries leading up to it. So to specifically say that it changed the way I thought about the Dodgers. Not really. I mean, we're, so many ownership groups from them, so many years from them. I, I have plenty of things about the current Dodgers to get mad about uh, with, with, <laughs> sure. without even thinking about that. You know, to your point, I have loved professional wrestling my entire life. That is a brutal business that, you know, sees proportionally a higher level of deaths amongst guys in their 40s and younger than almost any other sport. And I have to reckon with my fandom with that. You know, am, am I contributing to this? And 
there's a part of me that it wants to go pure libertarian, and it's like, you know, they got into this uh, of their own volition. They're making personal choices about how they spend their lives and how they earn their money. But then there's another part of me that says, well, I do bear some responsibility in that because I am a patron of this. And, yeah, sometimes if I go too far down the rabbit hole, I'll go, okay, my fandom of this has at least some problematic elements in it. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you do you do the calculus on it, and I go, I'm going to con- continue supporting this for reasons that I have sort of examined. And what's funny to me is I've had to do that for a long time now. History of drug use, uh, steroids, terrible practices from promoters. But I think what's interesting to watch is there are a lot of NFL fans that are having to reckon with this currently. Whereas before they didn't, a lot of these issues were in the in the shadows. You work in sports professionally. Would you say my appraisal of that is accurate? Yeah, I would definitely say that. And I would say college sports fans too, college football fans. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, that's a good I one. I think I think it's kinda of funny. I, I so I worked at Vice Sports for almost four years and among my colleagues there were a couple of reporters named Aaron Gordon and Patrick Ruby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they both they both did incredible work on sort of the like underlying corruption in sports and head trauma and football and a lot of the hypocrisy that we see with organizations like FIFA and the IOC and the NFL and the NCAA that sort of disingenuously claim to be looking out for their athletes when in fact they're, I mean, just a lot of criminal people on the top uh, exploiting those athletes. And I love sports, but it's also impossible to ignore the fact that the sports world, like any other industry, is full of serious problems that we need to think about and address as a society. Well, I've worked in some controversial industries, and one of the things we say is you're only ever as good as your worst operator because the public, in a lot of cases, won't make a distinction between sort of, I don't know, different brands. And this doesn't, like, this isn't a perfect metaphor for sports, but. When someone acts badly or someone behaves badly, and I think particularly about NFL ownership, that tends to paint everyone with the same brush, and fairly or unfairly in a lot of cases. But I think that's something that maybe owners or leadership at the top of sports organizations take for granted. You know, you look at USA Gymnastics, and you go, if that's happening there, it's possible and likely that's happening in other sports as well. I think... uh it's happening everywhere. And maybe, I mean, hopefully specifically not the way it's at gymnastics. Uh, but well, I, no, hopefully I, not that it, particular flavor. But the equivalent sort of willful blindness and ignorance and looking away from things. I mean, the NFL still regularly just happily promotes and signs players with horrible domestic abuse records, right? right? I mean, and nobody really cares. What does that say? Uh, it's tough. And sports is uh, always are frequently a a mirror to real life and people use it as an escape. And I think people get upset when that mirror gets turned in a particular way and they sit and they see what's happening in sports. It's reflective of what's actually happening in other aspects of our lives too. So, yeah, people don't, I mean, I, I can understand that as a sports fan, the instinct to just be like, you know, I want this to be my escape. I want sports to be the one good thing in my life that I don't have to worry about. But I also think that choosing that kind of, blissful ignorance is a privilege that you know some of us have but a lot of people don't 100 percent. okay so i don't want to take too much of your time and i want to i want to close on a lighter note which is you've written for deadspin the old version of deadspin i don't know what it is doing now i'm choosing not to support that but one of my favorite things that they do is remembering some guys yeah absolutely and so who are some of your guys uh well-known players Lesser-known players, they can be Dodgers or otherwise. And uh, you know what? Let's remember some guys. Sure. Uh, David Roth, guy rememberer. Okay, let's think about that. Uh, well, in the book, there's three guys I remember. Two of them, I would say, primarily Dodger players. They're, two of them are extremely famous, Jackie Robinson and Duke Snyder. Oh, certainly. And one of them was a great player, but I think it's under-remembered. It was Willie Davis, who was a center fielder who took over for Duke Snyder. And he had a long and tremendous career in with the Dodgers and kind of bouncing around the league after that. I think Willie Davis is a guy who should be remembered. Oh, nice. 
All right. My dad, for the longest time, would sing the praises of Ron Santo. And after he died, Ron Santo finally went into the Hall of Fame. Ron Santo is best remembered for me because my dad never shut up about him, and he was an awful, awful radio announcer. Uh, in a in in a particular way that I actually enjoyed, though, like uh, the opposing team would hit a home run, and Santa would just go, "Oh no!" <laughs> you have to appreciate that earnestness. <laughs> totally, just like totally guileless, just uh, just this beautiful soul who loved baseball, loved the Cubs, uh, and probably loved them so much to his detriment. You know what I mean? Until recently, actually, once again, now loving the Cubs seems like a super painful exercise. <laughs> It it was yeah it, it was an interesting experience, although I grew tired of some of the fatalism as well, and you still see that from like Red Sox fans, you know, like of that Bill Simmons mold who will always call back to that victimhood, and you go oh, I, yeah New England sports fans are not exactly um, victims anymore. Come on, I, yeah, drop <laughs> drop it. No one cares about Tony Eason in the eighties uh, playing for the Patriots. Like you you've been on top now for what feels like forever. So I mean, it's been like twenty years, right? I mean, the Patriots and Red Sox won those titles what two thousand four ish. Patriots two thousand, yeah, two thousand four. I think you're right. Or three with Brady, maybe, and then four Red Sox, and then you had the Bruins have won. The Celtics won a title. The Doc Rivers. I mean, yeah, yeah, the, the Ubuntu or yeah, what was it? Ubuntu. Um, the Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, Ron, Rondo, Pierce, Rajon Rondo, Paul Pierce is the and the original Celtic. I mean. Uh, of that crew. Who are some of your favorite guys from your era that you remember? Uh, I mentioned him earlier. Raul Mondesi was my favorite Dodger player growing up. Uh, El Cañon, just an incredible right fielder. Just that arm. Um, oh, yeah. The, I love a good arm. I, I got lucky enough to watch Larry Walker here in Colorado, and I watched him throw out a guy at first from our seats, which was awesome. Oh, that's amazing. Hall of Famer now, yeah. Larry Walker. God love it, finally. Yeah, super deserving. In basketball, my favorite Laker growing up was Nick Van Exel. Oh, nice. Uh, also a nugget. Also a nugget, yeah. And he used to take his free throws from like a foot behind the line, <laughs> which I thought was so cool. Yeah, that's that's a good guy to remember. I remember Nick Van Exel. Uh, one of my favorite nuggets, just because he was there forever. And when when the team was, the Nuggets were threatening to be one of the worst teams in the entire league, was Bryant Stith. And I thought if if Brian Stith is the best player on this team, boy, we are going to have a long season, and we did. Was he the best player on a Nuggets team? Yeah. Oh, that's brutal. Yeah, it was pretty rough. Uh, yeah, the Nuggets had traded like their big trade was for like Anthony Goldwire. Wow. And I think it was during the lockout shortened season. The Nuggets went something like twelve and forty five that year. It was it was a rough year. I feel like the Nuggets are generally sort of kind of goodish. Uh, but but not great. Like they and they always are kind of fun to watch. At least in the last you know ten or fifteen years, even when they're not that good. Yeah. Well, it's generally. I mean, that goes back to the Doug Mo era. Since we're at altitude, having that much speed because we we will cultivate speedy players. Um, they're they're a lot of fun to watch. I particularly was excited about this year's Nuggets, and now the NBA season seems to be over. But um, yeah, I wanted to see what they could do in that West against the Lakers and the Clippers because. I don't know. I thought they stacked up pretty favorably. I appreciate how you feel about that, but they were going to get crushed by either team. <laughs> uh, Fair enough. Were you an Avalanche fan too when oh, they yeah. came to Colorado? Oh, hell yeah. My my parents bought season tickets. And oh, wow. so that first year they won the cup and everyone went completely apeshit over it. Uh, when I was a kid, I mean, I liked the Kings growing up, but I also somehow became a big New Jersey Devils fan of those like bruising late '90s and early 2000s Devils teams. Oh, uh, the was... neutral zone trap Devils. Yeah, yeah, they were oh, terrible boom. to watch. I don't know why I liked watching them so much, but I really did. Oh. And uh, maybe just I liked the way that Brodeur played. But sure, I enjoyed the Stanley Cup series that the Avalanche beat the Devils in. I thought it was a, a good series. That was a great series. I I adored that series too. I mean, you had Wah and Brodeur, the two best goalies in the entire world going against each other in that series. It was amazing. Yeah, and both like extreme personalities, too, which I appreciated. <laughs> totally. Uh, I, I still hate Jeremy Roenick to this day because of what, what he would get into with Wah. And I remember Patrick saying in a press conference, he's like, I don't really hear what Jeremy says because I have my two Stanley Cup rings plugging my ears. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like hating Jeremy Roenick is, is something that every hockey fan has to go through at a certain point. <laughs> well, and I loved him, too, because of NHL 94. <laughs> Right? And, oh, sure. You know, watching Swingers, he's like, it's not so much me, it's Ronick. He's good. 
<laughs> so, uh, but I'll tell you what, Eric, I think it's about time to wrap this up. Give us a plug for the book. Give us a plug for you. Where can we find it? Where can we get this wonderful book? I can't wait to read it. Um, I have lots of time on my hands now, so I will definitely be picking up a copy. Tell us where we can get it. Yeah, sure. So the book is called Stealing Home, Los Angeles, the Dodgers, and the Lives Caught in Between. Uh, it's written by me, Eric Newsbaum. It is for sale on Amazon and also at every independent local bookseller. So I'm telling people right now, especially if you can support your local bookstore, please go ahead and, and give that a shot. Um, there's a website for the book, stealinghome.la, and there are lots of links to places you can pick it up. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, Eric News NUS, and I have a sports history newsletter called Sports Stories, and that's at sportsstories.substack.com, and you can check that out too. It's free. Nice. I will link to all of that in the companion blog piece. This also will be available in the show notes, so if you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcatchers, you'll find links to all of that. Eric Newsbaum, I know I mispronounced your name when we started this. Newsbaum is good, too. It truly doesn't matter. Okay. Well, very good. I, I appreciate you being zen about it, and uh, hope the book does great and continued success to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. This is really, really fun. And that wraps up episode 246 of the John of All Trades podcast with Eric Newsbaum, author of Stealing Home, Los Angeles, The Dodgers, and The Lives Caught in Between. Be sure to pick up a copy of this book. Do it from your local bookseller. I've got links to his site on the John of All Trades companion blog piece. That's johnofalltrades.us. Also in the show notes, if you're listening to us on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartMedia, or any other podcatcher, let's pay some love to our sponsor, 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Anything you're doing online, which is pretty much everything these days, isn't it? 4Degrees can help you do it better. Reach audiences, reach people, get in front of the communities that need to hear your message most, and get the message right. They are exceptional to work with. They are insanely talented. They are creative, brilliant, and I cannot recommend them highly enough. Number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Stay up with John of All Trades on social media. That's Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. Also now Twitch, apparently, because I had to sign up for that so I could play Geeks Who Drink Pub Quizzes. The handle is J-O-A-T-Pod. If you're listening on one of those podcatchers, leave us a rating, leave us a review, and hit that subscribe button. Brand new episodes will come to you directly without you having to do any work. For instance, next week, we're not done with baseball yet. That's right. I got another surprise for you. I said I had a Murderer's Row of guests coming up, and this one is a particular thrill because I've been working on it for more than a year. Who is it? You'll have to stay tuned. Episode previews drop on Monday, only on Facebook, so be sure to like us there. And new episodes drop on Wednesday. So, until I hear you again for another great episode of the John of All Trades podcast, say goodnight, Tracy. That's good, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs>